والسلام على رسول الله أما بعد فأما بنعمة ربك فحدث and as for the praises or the bounties or the blessings of Allah upon you then make mention upon them so once again it gives me great pleasure to be with our brother and inshallah in his respected form Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif who is originally from Misr, from Egypt and I went on to live in the United States of America or in Canada I believe US, US. and then he went back to Medina to Munawwara to graduate from the prestigious Islamic University in 1999 he is for those of you who are not familiar in charge of www.khutbah.com a website designed specifically for the delivering of the Friday sermons and also the founding member of the Al-Maghrib Institute and we're all familiar with the, the brothers and the etiquette of speaking and his speech insha'Allah and without further ado فَلْيَتَفَضَّلْ مَشْكُورًا إِنَّ الْحَمْدَ لِلَّهِ نَحْمَدُهُ سُبْحَانَهُ وَنَسْتَعِينُهُ وَنَسْتَغْفِرُهُ وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا وَمِنْ سَيِّئَاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا مَنْ يَهْدِهِ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى فَلَا مُضِلَّ لَهُ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد To begin you know actually just at this moment I recall last year's conference last year's GMAS conference the first question on the question answer night was is it permissible to have a cat do you guys remember that question from last year well I'll tell you that I love cats very much. My grandmother, rahimahullah, in Egypt she had two cats. And when we'd go to visit her, she had two cats. One was black and one was white. One was called Mishmish, and the other one was called Zizi. So I would run around chasing Mishmish and Zizi, and they both passed away, rahimahullah. It was a long time ago. But there's one aspect... <coughs> A cat. If you try running after a cat, many of you I'm sure you love cats very much also. If you run after a cat, the cat will run away from you. It will continue to treat you with um, dignity. It will run away. It's afraid of you until you do one thing. Until you corner it. What happens to the cat when you corner it? It changes identity. Meaning that now it's looking, it can't, right, uh, can't run left, can't run right. So it stops, it raises its claws, and it starts hissing. Right? And we can get one of the little kids to make the sound for us. Can you make the sound? Right? The cat will go like that. Basically the hissing sound of the cat. <clears throat> In this lecture today, what we're talking about is khuluq. And how it's possible in the way that we act with others... We act like this person treats a cat. In some ways, the people respect us. But when our khuluq changes, it's possible that we've cornered the person and that the only way that person can answer back is with bad khuluq. I'll give you an example of this. Let's say a woman wakes her husband up for fajr. Alhamdulillah, I'm sure many of you have good uh, Muslim wives here that wake you up for fajr. There are two styles to wake someone up for fajr. One, a woman can come to her husband and say, Qum ya salih. Get up, O righteous man. Okay, that's one. So the husband 
In order to fulfill, not let his wife down, he will wake up for Fajr. He said, yes, I am the righteous man, I will wake up for Fajr. Second scenario, and how many of you, ha- that actually happened to them? I'm sure not too many, right? Okay, second scenario is what normally happens in many of our communities, not just in the UK, but everywhere around the world. Qum ya munafiq. Right? Get up, oh hypocrite. So now look at the position of this husband who's sleeping on the bed. If he gets up for Fajr, he will be admitting to his wife that he is a hypocrite. That's how he was cornered. The only way for him to save his honor, to not be humiliated in front of the people, is to not get up for Fajr. وَالْعِيَادُ billah. And this is the khuluq that came out. And in many times when we give da'wah to people, we add on those little cornering statements. Like you person of bid'ah. You should follow the sunnah, O person of bid'ah. If the person listens to you, he's acknowledging that he's a person of bid'ah. And there's no need for that. And inshaAllah ta'ala we're going to see uh, some examples of the beautiful character of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Civilization... When you think, who is the most civilized, or who are the most civilized people on earth? Many people will say, the USA. The most civilized people on earth. Why are they the most civilized? They'll say, because they have lots of computers. They have lots of PDAs, and cell phones, and mobiles, and so on and so forth. And what's interesting, we were actually talking about this this morning. If you go to any computer industry in the US, they're all Pakistanis, Indians working there. It's not actually Americans that are there. Pakistani Indians and the host of other nations that create these products. Okay, so normally, because you can find someone who has all the technology advances, but yet they're not civilized. What is the true measurement of civilization? So we imagine someone a thousand years ago, is it possible that they're civilized? Of course it is. But they don't have computers. It doesn't matter. Why it doesn't matter? Because the true measurement of civilization is... Their relationship to Adl, how much justice they have. And with their justice, they become civilized, and with their unjustness, they become barbarians and savage people, based on this. And so you see the Prophet ﷺ saying, Khairul Quruni Qarni, that the best generation is my generation, not because of technology advances, but because of the Adl that was practiced. Then the generation after that, and then the generation after that. <coughs> Bukhari narrates, and this is in Manaqib al-Sahaba, Bab Manaqib Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal, Inna min ahabbikum ilayya ahsanakum akhlaqa. He said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that the most beloved amongst you, to me, is the one amongst you who has the best character. The one who has the best khuluq, I love that person the most. And here you see the word ahsanakum, the one who is better in character. It's not that these two people have good character, this one has better character, and so he is most more beloved to the Prophet wasallam. And you'll see in Bukhari and Muslim, fi kitab al-Zakah, the Prophet ﷺ said, اِتَّقُوا النَّارِ وَلَوْ بِشِقِّ تَمْرَ And so you see the door of sadaqa. <coughs> There's no way a person can get out except that they 
give sadaqah even with half a date. Let's imagine that a person doesn't even have half a date to give sadaqah. Not even half a date. The Prophet ﷺ said, فَإِلَّمْ تَجِدْ فَبِكَلِمَةٍ طَيِّبًا That if you can find that half date to give sadaqah, then give sadaqah with a good word. And so a mu'min in their good khuluq, as the Prophet ﷺ taught us, they're actually protecting themselves from hellfire. And so you'll see a relationship between the good character and the relationship to the hereafter with that. Now when you were thinking of this um, lecture today, you may have thought that I was going to tell you stories. And indeed there are many lessons to be taught from those stories, but I'm not going to tell you stories. What I'm going to inshallah ta'ala and hope is to give you some motivation to make a change in your life. Because that's why you're here inshallah. Is that you want to change something. And so bi'ithnillah, I want to give you some of those tools. And so it's not just about hearing stories, but it's about extracting lessons, saying what is wrong with me now that I want to change, and then right here and tomorrow and the day after, moving forward towards that change, bi'ithnillah. If I told you, you know some introductions they say, um, as you all know, Brother Muhammad al-Sharif, he doesn't need any introduction. Imagine if the introduction went like that. How many of you know anything about me even though that he said that? A lot of you wouldn't know too much about me and you probably after the introduction, you still don't know too much about me. Right? Correct. So now, if I said that I could sum up this entire lecture in one hadith, I would say here we're talking about the character of the Prophet ﷺ. If I said, كَانَ خُلُقُهُ الْقُرْآنِ Enough said, I will leave now. Did you get the lesson or not? If I just said that, كَانَ خُلُقُهُ الْقُرْآنِ I don't think you would get the lesson. And why I'm saying this is because this is a feeling that I used to feel when I was younger. We'd go into uh, tarbiyah classes in the Sunday school, Saturday schools. And then it would be the tarbiyah, the teacher would always mention, this is hadith number one. The statement of Aisha radiallahu anha that the Prophet ﷺ's character was the Qur'an. And I used to say to myself, how could that be? How does a surah like, Tabbat yada Abi Lahabim, when we're younger, we memorize these surahs, how does that become the khuluq of someone? How does it become? Alam tara fa'ala rabbuka How does that become the khuluq of someone? And then another ayah or another hadith statement that was confusing was that the companion, one companion, he heard some ayat being recited and then he left. And they said, why did you leave? Because he was afraid he wouldn't be able to implement. Implement the characters and the lesson that he learned and it was too much for him. And another statement, you'll see that the companions used to memorize 10 ayat and make it part of their lives. I didn't understand these hadith because I said, implement what? And the answer lies in the fact that we don't know the Qur'an. I'll say that again, the answer lies that we don't know the Qur'an. We don't know the khuluq taught in the Qur'an and therefore we don't understand the khuluq of Rasul wasallam. I make a statement like that and now I have to back it up with proof, right? And inshallah ta'ala I'm going to. And it'll come throughout the lecture, bi'ithnillah. And I, I say this because I taught a tafsir class. And as I went through the tafsir class, just amma, I started seeing things and I couldn't imagine how much emphasis Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put in these ayat. 
we recite it every day. Every rak'ah sometimes we recite these verses. But yet the lessons don't go through into our minds for most people. And inshallah ta'ala I'm going to explain some of that. Number one, firstly we have to understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in many of these ayat and in the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu attaches the khuluq to the akhirah. So your character is related to your deen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, give you an example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, This is talking about pardoning people and forgiving them. Why should you pardon people? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That the final hour is coming. So what should you do? Because it's coming, then pardon people. Forgive them. Someone bumps you in line, it's okay. Just let it go. You don't have to make a big deal. You didn't get your uh, room last night. It's not a big deal. You can sleep in your car, right? And imagine if this is a slogan, so long as I believe in the hereafter, then I will make this part of my character. And like you'll see in a surah that you recite again and again and again, Surah Al-Ma'oon, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي And if I told you what does the person who disbelieves in the hereafter, in the repayment, the day of repayment, what does he look like? And you would start describing someone that looks very similar to maybe Bush or something like that. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes what he looks like. فَذَٰلِكَ الَّذِي يَدْعُوا الْيَتِيمِ Interesting characteristic. The kafir, الَّذِي يُكَذِّبْ is the one who pushes away orphans. And actually this morning I looked, one of the booths outside is an orphanage booth. And you'll see out of all the other booths, one is selling candy and one is selling jilbabs and one is selling binoculars. The orphan one is the quietest booth out there. أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يُكَذِّبُ بِالْدِينِ it's a characteristic of someone who disbelieves in the hereafter. That they push away the orphans. And we're getting to more of those inshaAllah. Number two, is that just like a person wishes to beautify themselves with clothes. So a man wears a beautiful jilbab, and a woman wears a beautiful jilbab, and so on and so forth. There's also another type of clothing, and that is the clothing of khuluq. And so a person shows off, not shows off, but they beautify themselves with khuluq. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya bani adam qad anzalna alaykum libasan yuwari sawatikum warisha. It's talking about the favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give bani adam the clothing that they have to cover their awrat. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Walibasun taqwa thalika khayr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about taqwa as libas. It's a beautification of the person that they have good khuluq. And indeed, anytime you go through ayat or hadith, you will find connections to the khuluq. Everywhere you go, it's not about one hadith here, one hadith there. Almost every single hadith you pass, whether it's talking about ikhlas, or it's talking about taqwa, or it's talking about generosity, or it's talking about rahmah, or it's talking about sidq, you will see all of it very much attached to the Qur'an and sunnah all throughout. And just like a person, you know, we might go out into this huge mountainscape, and I could... and. 
this in fact happened, one person, there's these like mountain goats that were almost extinct in a certain part of the U.S. And he took someone else outside and they saw the mountain and he told his friend, he said, there are many mountains out tonight, many goats out tonight. So that other person looked at the mountain and then he said, I can't see a single one. I can't see any of them. And yet this person saying, there are many. And he said, look over there, follow the traces, the lines. And then as he carried his eyesight, he saw a change in the pattern and there was the goat. And then he said, there's one. He said, now following that pattern, try to find some more. So he went up the mountain and similar. He started finding one, two, three, four, five, because now he knew what he was looking for. And indeed, you may hear that these ayats and a hadith are very much attached to khuluq, but you might not see it. And you might not see it because you might not know the pattern and where to look for it. But as your eyes start tuning to that recitation, you will see the khuluq coming out. You will see it there very much entrenched in all of our beliefs. <clears throat> when a person has bad khuluq, bad character, before we get on to changing our character, we have to understand what, what causes the bad character. Firstly, a person may have bad character because they want to be significant in the eyes of others. And what's interesting, someone may insult someone and treat them badly because they want that person's attention and love. Very interesting way of getting attention and love is to insult someone. Now imagine here, you have um, the brother, he's up here on stage and someone will say, how come he gets to get on stage and everybody gets to look at him and so on? What about me? I want to be significant too. So how does this person become significant? After the lecture, he goes out and backbites on the person who introduced the speaker. He says, because in the sight of other people, he will then become significant. And so that may be one of the causes of a person coming out with bad character, is their love for significance, their own love to be seen by other people. Number two, <clears throat> cause of bad character could be the culture of a person. And there are actually many different reasons why a person has bad character. So for example, many of you have British character. Right? British character. I recognize it because I'm coming from the U.S. You act differently to me. And I recognize that one, two, three, all of you are doing the same thing. You obviously learned it from the U.K. And if you went to the U.S., you would also see different character. And if you went to Canada, you would be shocked. They're such polite, nice people. Right? That's a Canadian character. People get it from each other. And one thing, we were in Medina for about, um, I lived in Medina for six years. Every time we'd go for Hajj, anybody who came for Hajj, they would notice that me and a British brother that was with me, we were always calm. We were the ones saying, inshallah, bukra ma'lish. You know, we were calm like that. That's what we learned from Saudi Arabia. So when I went to the U.S., moving back to the U.S., and then I came to uh, Hajj the next year, someone pushed me at the Kaaba. First time I'm doing Tawaf Umrah, someone pushed me. I got so angry. So angry. And I immediately, you know, I was about to shout and then I said, wait a second. This was a feeling and a snap anger that I've never felt in my life. Never. And I lived here for six years before this. I never felt it. And I realized that I had learned this and picked it up from the USA. And that's why you see, you know, they're slapping people every time they get mad at someone. They start, you know, hurting them. This is something that is taught. And that's like a metropolitan life. People get angry like that very quickly. And someone may not recognize it until they leave that culture, and then they see it. 
So you have to be careful what you're picking up from the culture. One of the solutions to that is to travel around and pick up good culture and good character from other people. And one of the third reasons, and again, there are many reasons for uh, bad character, is a person has no life. They have nothing to do with their time. They have, there's no dawah activities. They're free. They're watching TV. There's nothing. And if I hear someone say, oh, there's nothing on TV, and they're still watching for three hours, the person has a serious problem. Serious problem. Because they're wasting their lives in front of that television. Then their friend comes over. They go, hmm, nothing to talk about. Let's backbite. And they start backbiting because they have no life. That instead, there's so many good things to speak about and so many good um, uh, commandments of goodness that they need to be spending their time with, they don't know that. And they have no goals in their life that they spend wasting that time. Again, another example of what causes bad character. The Prophet wasallam. I'm going to give you this example because a lot of times when people say, I want to enliven the sunnah, even when you say, when a statement like that happens, I want to enliven the sunnah, I could ask you, what do you think I'm talking about? You would say, you want to enliven the sunnah by, by doing what? I want to get someone here, just straight from the top of your head, don't think too much about it, just a, a regular statement like that, enliven the sunnah, someone with their hand raised. I'm going to enliven the sunnah. What do I mean? What am I going to resurrect? Yes, brother? Sorry? Implementation of what? Do people normally say that and mean it like that? I'm saying don't think too hard because that might be the right answer. Okay, I'll tell you. I'm going to, someone who says, I, I'm going to enliven the sunnah, they probably mean that I'm going to use miswak. Or something like that. Or a type of clothing. I'm going to live in the sunnah, I'm going to wear these types of clothes. Or use a miswad. But you go through the Qur'an and you see that the roots of where the sunnah are. And I give you an example of it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ That the sabil of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his path, his sunnah, what does he do? أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ That I call to Allah. I give da'wah. And so if someone says, I'm going to enliven the sunnah, they should mean that I'm going to resurrect the da'wah ilallah. That's what they should mean. That I'm going to continue and raise up a people who hear about Islam. That's what they mean by enlivening the sunnah. And also when you see enlivening the sunnah, you see Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah, when the Prophet wasallam said, died, they said, let's enliven the sunnah. By doing what? By visiting one of the elderly women on the outskirts of Medina. Allahu Akbar. Enliven the sunnah by visiting the elderly of the community. The sunnah of Rasulullah So they went to her. And when they visited her, she started crying. Many of you know the hadith and the statement. She started crying and they told her, be patient. Because that which is with Allah is better for the Messenger of Allah than this dunya. She said, that's not why I'm crying. I'm crying because the wahi has been cut off now. And you see the statement, it says, فَهَيَّجَتْهُمَا عَلَى الْبُكَاءِ That it caused the Khalifa, رضي الله عنه, and Umar رضي الله عنه, to start crying. This senior woman, because in this, in this moment, they were enlivening the sunnah, I ask you the question, why did the Prophet ﷺ go himself to visit people like that? Why didn't he 
delegate some of the other companions. For example, you could say, you companion go to this person, you companion go to that person, I'm the messenger of Allah, and I'm busy in da'wah activities. For example. Because if you go, for example, in some of the people that are involved in a conference, like GMAS and many other conferences, go to their parents. And I'm not saying this happens for all of the people, but go to their parents and tell them, does your son visit you often? They'll say, I never see my son. He's always busy with these conferences. I never get phone calls. They're always busy. I tell them, come home. They say, no, mama, I have, I have a conference to go to. And she says, I never go to these conferences. I hope these conferences just stop so I can see my son. These are people that are, in our normal times, they're too busy with the da'wah. Now the Messenger of Allah should have been more busier. But he wasn't. He took time for these people. Now why? Because those kind of visits, that kind of rahmah with the people, allowed knowledge of Islam to enter their hearts in a way that no conference could. They could come to hundreds and hundreds of conferences. They wouldn't learn in the same way that someone visiting their house. They wouldn't learn in the same way like a pamphlet. People hand out pamphlets about Islam. Those visits mean more to them than the pamphlets. And you keep looking at it, that they truly allow, it truly allows the knowledge of Allah and His Messenger to enter their hearts. So a very amazing da'wah project. All you have to do to give da'wah is not go on the street and call out Christians and so on and so forth. Just go visit the seniors of the community. And you will be enlivening the sunnah bi'ithnillah. <clears throat> Every day, we sell ourselves. Right? If, if I put this watch up to the microphone, you may hear it if you're quiet. Okay? Are you quiet? Let's see. Can't hear it. Me neither. <laughs> Anyways... You couldn't hear the heartbeats of your life. This sound and that clicking of the watch is in fact your life. And you're selling it. You're selling it for what? You're trading it off. Some people trade it off for things that are less worthy or they're not equal to their life. For example, a person sells their life for television. So it's a bad deal. They didn't get anything out of it. The only way you're going to sell yourself, because if you're going to sell something, you want to get something back in return that is better than your own life. What is better than your life in this dunya is the akhirah, is jannah. And so anytime you give your life away, give it for something that will gain you paradise and not for anything other than that. As Ibn Hazm rahimahullah said, rahimahullah, he said, لا تبذل نفسك إلا فيما هو أغلى منها. Don't spend yourself in anything except that which is more, um, more valuable than your own self. He says the person that sells themselves for just the commodity of this dunya is like a person who sells pearls for pebbles. And an intelligent person will not allow to trade himself for anything except paradise. That is the intelligent person. <clears throat> and what this means is that you do action, you live your Islam. Your iman is a verb. It's an action that you do. And you move forward with it. I'll give you this example. Many times if you ask someone, who is the greatest da'i on earth today? It might be the yellow pages. 
or the white pages. Why? Because people go to the white pages, they say Islamic center, they go there and they become Muslim. And they hear about Islam through the white pages. You have white pages here, right? No? What? Yellow? Only yellow? Okay. The white pages are for like the Islamic centers, yellow pages are for businesses. Anyhow. So this brother, he came to the masjid. When I, um, he, he told me this story. He came to the masjid and he told the imam, I want to become Muslim. The imam said, MashaAllah, we have a new brother, he's going to become Muslim today. Ahlan wa sahlan. And then so, Ashadu, he repeats, Ashadu an la ilaha. So he gives a shahada, everybody says, Takbir, Allah Akbar. And everybody comes up to him and hugs him and gives him the first word of advice as a, Islam, uh, as a Muslim. So, advice number one, sorry, they start telling him the pillars of Islam. Pillar of Islam number one, change your name. Pillar of Islam number two, eat halal chicken. And as we say in Egyptian, chicken. Okay? So he tells me that everybody who came up to him, his name was Joseph, they say, you know, brother, you need to change your name and eat halal chicken. Change your name, eat halal chicken. Change your name, eat halal chicken. Chicken, 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 right? So this focus, so he's like, man, I need to eat halal chicken. Seems pretty uh, important. So everybody told him this. He says, he was telling me this. Everybody told him this, and then they left the masjid. Tell him, eat halal chicken, leave the masjid. Eat halal chicken. And they left him. Go find out where the halal chicken is, brother. God be with you. And he says that the only there was one difference. He said that my father, uh, Hafizullah, he used to slaughter in that area. There was no one to slaughter the chicken except my father. My father would slaughter it, gather the um, chickens in the house, and sell it to the Muslims. And so my father took him outside and didn't talk, opened the trunk, took out uh, some boxes of chicken, and he said, here, take this home for you. And he said, I never forgot that, Muhammad. Because it wasn't about talk, it was about actions. And sometimes, I'll just give you this example. You may want to help someone to do their salah. But you know what's actually stopping them from doing their salah? They don't know how to do salah. That's it. If they knew, like you tell them, come to the masjid, brother, ittaqillah, don't be a munafiq. Come to the masjid, they'll say, no, I don't want to come. But what they're saying is, please teach me how to pray because I really love to go to the masjid. That's what they're saying. And so the, the intelligent person just says, would you like me to teach you how to pray? And when they learn, they would be the first ones in the masjid. In fact, and you'll see this with many of the mu'advineen, they just learn how to give the adhan and they want to give it every single day in the masjid. But it takes an intelligent person to recognize that and teach the people correctly. <clears throat> Of the two khuluq, and I'm not going to tell you many different khuluq, but I'm going to teach you two main uh, characteristics that inshallah ta'ala, if you only start working on these two, bi'idhnillah they will lead you on to many of the other beautiful characteristics. Characteristic number one, that you should be, this should be your identity, is that you should be a person of rahmah, a person of mercy. And not only... It's not that you're the one who says you're a person of mercy. Go around surveying people. Ask them, do you think I'm a person of mercy? They'll go, no, you're so mean to everybody. Then it's what the other people think, not what you think. So the per, a characteristic of mercy, second characteristic, all important characteristic, is as-sidq, is truthfulness. Truthfulness with yourself, truthfulness with Allah Azza wa Jal, truthfulness with the people. 
And these two characteristics can lead you on to good things. Let's give an example. If someone doesn't have rahmah, and indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins the Qur'an, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching us these characteristics so that we can take it upon ourselves. <clears throat> Number one, if someone doesn't have rahmah, they won't give da'wah to anybody. They will not give da'wah. They will say, oh I'm shy. I'm shy, he's not going to accept Islam. I'll embarrass myself. This person has no rahmah for the people. And if you go to a lot of the non-Muslims, they've never received da'wah, the majority. And what does that mean? They're living amongst a community of people that don't have rahmah for them. That's what it means. And that's what I'm going to say with sidq, is to be truthful with ourselves. We don't have the rahmah to pass on to the people this knowledge of Islam. I'll give you the example, messenger after messenger in the Qur'an. They said, إِنِّي أَخَافُ عَلَيْكُمْ عَذَابَ يَوْمٍ عَظِيمٍ And I really thought about this. They said, إِنِّي أَخَافُ عَلَيْكُمْ I fear for you the punishment of a great day, an enormous day. I'm actually scared for you. How many of us are scared for the kuffar? And if you say you're scared for the kuffar, then right now, at the moment, you have to be living a life of da'wah. If you're not, then you're really not afraid for them. You're really not scared. You may have received Islam, you feel safe, but you haven't gotten that characteristic of rahmah to pass it on to the people. Again, that goes to sidq. It's being truthful with ourselves first, so that we can pass on. Number two, with rahmah. If someone doesn't have rahmah, they have no patience with the people. They have no sabr. Again, I said, rahmah will lead on to other characteristics. If someone is truly merciful, give you an example, someone is merciful, they want their mother to become Muslim. Suppose their mother's not Muslim. They keep giving her da'wah, she rejects. In the worst rejections. But he has rahmah, he doesn't want to see her die as a non-Muslim, so he keeps trying. If it wasn't his mother, he would try once, the person would say, get lost, I don't want to hear about this. They'll say, forget you, you're going to hellfire anyway. And then they would walk away. There's no sabr because there was no rahmah there. The second characteristic is sidq, is truthfulness. And that's so important because if we're not truthful with ourselves, we're not admitting that something's wrong. And if we don't admit something's wrong, we will not change. We will continue living our lives in the way that they are. Someone will say, yeah, I'm a good Muslim. I'm a good Muslim. But they're not truthful with themselves. That they can always be better than that. And always have a model to continually work to perfect that. But it takes truthfulness to move on. <clears throat> and of course, if someone isn't truthful, and they're living a double life. So they might have a life at the Muslim. And as one sheikh says, that um, they become super Muslim. At the masjid, right? You know, the thobes come out, the topis are, are put on. And they become super Muslim. I don't talk to sisters and astaghfirullah this, astaghfirullah that. But then they go to work on Monday. And super Muslim is back in the briefcase, back at home. And then there's non-Muslim women they're talking to. Oh, I have to shake hands and, and so on and so forth. And, and everything's all fine. Oh, I just missed Asr Salah. Oh, you know, I'll make it up when I go home. That is a lack of sidq. They're not truthful. So one thing will either happen, either, or one of the two identities will overcome the other. Either they'll do tawbah to Allah Azza wa Jal, and this is what we want, and then they will practice their Islam in all aspects of their life, or the second identity, 
the Monday through Friday identity will overcome the super Muslim identity. And then he will start applying, he will go to the masjid and he will say, this is not who I am. I'm not really a good Muslim. And then the identity overcomes, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لِرَجُلٍ مِنْ قَلْبَيْنِ فِي جَوْفِ That Allah didn't put two hearts in a person, in his chest, in his jawf. He doesn't have two hearts and he can't believe in two different things. <clears throat> One of the things that, um, or the fundamental drive of a human is pain and pleasure. A person either does something because it gives them pain, or they want to stay away from pain, or they do it because they want pleasure, they want uh, to enjoy something. Like for example, as people walk out of this lecture, there is something that's going to give them more pleasure than being in the lecture. Right? It might be to go get some snacks, or it might be to something else, something that's giving them more pleasure. And someone else might say, well, I could get the snacks, that is a pleasure, but what I'm going to miss in that time is very important to me, so that's a pain. And then the pain overcomes. So you have pain and pleasure like this. Raghba and rahba, fear and hope. All throughout the Qur'an, paradise, hellfire, pain and pleasure, pain and pleasure. One encouraging, one discouraging the person. So when someone does something, they're actually overcoming some sort of pain or some sort of pleasure in order to do the action. So let's take an action of, let's say, backbiting. And let's say someone who's very heavily involved in backbiting, he likes to backbite or she likes to backbite about everyone, everything. What kind of pleasure does this person get for backbiting? Number one, they get to socialize. They have something to talk about and when they speak and gossip, I, I think you don't have the National Enquirer here, but just like gossip, it's fun. And they want fun. It brings them pleasure. Everybody gathers around. Yeah, what did happen? And then everybody starts talking back and forth, back and forth. So there's pleasure involved in the backbiting. What kind of pain does this person get? I tell you, there is no pain for the backbiting. I'm talking about someone who loves to backbite. I'm not talking about a good mu'min. Obviously, there's a lot of pain. They backbite, it's like the world collapsed on them if they backbite. That's the pain of the believer. But a regular person who's indulged in backbiting finds no pain for backbiting. Now let's do the opposite. What if they didn't backbite? If they didn't backbite, what kind of pleasure would they get for not backbiting? Nothing. There's no attachment. They didn't backbite. They don't feel for any reward. There's just no pleasure. They just miss an opportunity. So the pain actually comes in. When they don't backbite, they'll say, Oh, we had a boring gathering. That was pain. I didn't get to socialize. I didn't get to tell my friends about what happened to such and such sister and what happened to this breakup of a brother and and this uh, sister, and so on and so forth. So there's pain involved. So whenever you want to help someone, whether you're talking about youth, you want to help them in their terbiyah, or you want to help yourself, ask yourself, what kind of pain do I get for this action, and what kind of pleasure do I get for this action? And if you're still doing the bad khuluq, one of them is lopsided. And just write it down in a list, and you will see the lopsidedness, start to create some sort of pain and pleasure in the opposite direction, the direction that you want to go to, bi'ithnillah, and you'll be able to change it. The stick. A lot of tarbiyah can be taught through a stick. Right? You call it danda, or you call it asa, or falaq, or whatever you want to call it. The children learn through the stick, correct? You get a stick for a kid, kids acting bad, maybe there's kids playing outside right now. An adult tells them, you know, brothers, you should sit in the lecture. It doesn't work. They don't want to sit in the lecture. Someone takes out a stick, whack, 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 whack. 
they learned their lesson. Ah, lectures are good, right? And I remember when um, uh, in our Quran school, and mashallah, tabarakallah, of the people that love to teach Quran around the world are uh, the Indians. And my teacher, Hafizahullah, was uh, a Muslim from India. And he came and taught us, and he teaches us uh, with a stick. This is a famous uh, teaching technique called the danda. So, I remember when we were little kids, some of the kids would go to Malana Saab, and they would say, you know, Malana Saab, we want to order fish sticks. And so he says to himself, he says, sticks? He goes, I have a stick. And he's about to feed the stick to him. He said, like, you know, markana, um, like they say, right? Eat this stick. And they say, no, no, Milana. The kids are laughing. No, fish sticks. He goes, oh, fish is stick. <laughs> that there's a difference. Now, with the stick, if you look at a tree, a tree grows weak, right? It's climbing weak. You will always see a stick. Sometimes the stick is even longer than the actual tree. Because the tree wants to, the person wants the tree to grow up straight. If there was no stick, then that tree would grow crooked. Or similarly, you have a donkey. If you're riding the donkey, the donkey will go anywhere it wants. The only way it knows the direction to go is through a stick. Now why I'm saying this, I'm not saying that you should beat yourself or beat your friends or so on. And the Prophet ﷺ, he never hit anybody in his family. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't have to be a physical stick, but it needs to be guidance. There has to be guidance in that community. So that someone backbites, the community hits them. Not necessarily physical, but for example, someone backbiting, Astaghfirullah, I can't hear, listen to this backbite, I'm going to stand outside, when you're done backbiting, tell me, I will come back inside, inshallah. That has to be the stick. And when people have that in their community, you will see a good community with the stick there. And when you don't see that, where people are allowed to backbite and everybody's just like, oh, he's backbiting again. Let's just wait till he's done. When that happens, then the community gets worse because there's no stick and there's no guidance um, in the community. The next point is the attachment of khuluq to ilm, to knowledge. Because a lot of times you'll see da'wah movements where there was a focus on khuluq. Let's teach the youth khuluq, khuluq, khuluq. And when they taught it, mistakes came out from it. Because there wasn't a focus on ilm also. And there has to be an attachment. And ilm and and khuluq are, are hand in hand. What happens? When someone goes forward with khuluq or wants to come closer to Allah, do good actions... Without knowledge. You have the example of those people that started looking at the ibad of the Prophet ﷺ. They said, where are we from the ibad of the Prophet ﷺ? One of them said, I will fast forever. Second person said, I will pray qiyamul layl forever. Third one said, I will never get married. And the Prophet ﷺ got angry. He said, I fast one day and I break my fast the other. Pray one day. Second day, I don't pray qiyamul layl. And I marry women. فَمَنْ رَغِبَ عَنْ سُنَّتِي فَلَيْسَ مِنِّي and so whoever chooses a path and inclines to a path other than my sunnah is not one of me. So you have to see that when someone goes forward with, with, that, um, with the khuluq, they have to do it with knowledge. I'm going to give you an example of this. Recently I've been reading up on um, kind of like the psychology of people, behavioral science, and try to recognize when someone is bored. Like for example, if they're sleeping, right? Or if someone is annoyed, they don't like what I said, 
then they'll also have a certain reaction on their face. I can tell you when someone, if I'm speaking in a lecture, and they're repenting to Allah, what does it look like? I can tell you if they're repenting to Allah. I can like point out in the crown, I say, this brother, right now brother, you're repenting to Allah? They'll say, yes I am. What do they look like? Someone will say, how do you know that? You don't know what's in their heart. You don't know what's in their heart, but you know what's in their eyes and what's in their face. Their face tells what's happening in their mind. Their eyes will go down. They will start looking to the right like this, and they might even start crying. Obvious signs that the person is coming back to Allah Azza Obvious sign that someone is bored, they take out a newspaper in your lecture, and they start reading. And then occasionally they look up over the newspaper, and they go back. Obviously bored. Okay, now the point I'm trying to say is how do you tell if someone obviously learned something in a lecture? I can tell you that. If I start telling you something, there's a sign that when I see someone do this, I know that they've learned something at that moment. Very amazing. Very awesome, as you people like to say, right? Awesome. If the person uh, learned something, what does their face look like? Who wants to tell me? What will you see on their face if they learn something amazing? What will they say? What will happen on their face? They're smiling. If they are smiling, someone's like... And then they smile in the middle of a lecture because of like a statement you see them following, you know that they learned something very amazing. And so you see people... Ahlul ilm are people that smile. People who are walking on this earth with knowledge are smiling. Of course, there's crazy people too who are smiling a little too much also. But we're talking about an association with knowledge and, um, and the smiles. What happens if someone is completely ignorant? And still they're like practicing Muslim stuff, but they're running around with ignorance. They're frowning. Frowning. Every time they go somewhere, they have a big frown on their face. What's wrong, brother? What happened? Nothing. I'm doing this for the sake of Allah. You know, the frown on their face. And you'll see this happening with a lot of people that are, have newly gotten involved in the da'wah. They're new in the da'wah. And they might have started off with smiles, but as they started getting, they started getting angry at what's happening around the world, what's happening to us. So then the frowns. You're a disbeliever, I frown at you. You're a bad Muslim, I frown at you. Because this is what I think is the taqwa of Allah. But with the knowledge comes the smile and the courage and the mercy to help the people. Bi'ibnillah. Knowledge helps a person to identify <clears throat> the differences between people. So you have, for example, the Prophet ﷺ teaching Mu'adh before he went, إِنَّكَ تَأْتِي قَوْمًا أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ He said, you're going to come to a people that are from Ahlul Kitab. So now the da'wah style changes, pay attention to their background. So you don't go to Muslims, for example, who are praying Fajr, and you have to give a khatira after Fajr, and you start telling them the sin of missing Fajr. They look around and they say, who are you talking to? We're here in the masjid. Out of all the people in the UK, we are the five people who came for Fajr. Out of anyone who doesn't deserve to listen to this lecture, it is us. You are talking to the wrong person. And the imam goes, oh, oh, I'm sorry. The, you know, the virtue of the people who come for Fajr. Ah, that's a good topic. Because now you're talking to the right people. And it's about understanding who you're speaking to. 
Now, there's a distinction in the Qur'an. This is another distinction. Like I said, remember, you may not have paid attention to it in the past, but I'm going to give you an attention focus on an ayat that you may or may not have heard, but inshallah you heard it before. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in many of the stories of the prophets, with their people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will use the word mala. Say it again. Mala. Say it with me. Mala. Okay? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَقَالَ الْمَلَأُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِن قَوْمِهِ There's a word there, and it's a very significant word. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, The mala' of the kuffar from his people said. It was not his people that said this, it was the mala'. And when Musa was sent to Fir'aun, many of us think it was just Fir'aun that he was sent to. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we sent Musa and Harun إِلَى فِرْعَوْنَ وَمَلَئِهِ we sent Musa and Harun to Fir'aun and his Mala. The Mala people, who are they? They're the aristocrats of society, the noble class, the higher ups, the Hollywoods of society, the PhD people that tell people what to do, the think tanks, the minority that herds the entire society in the direction that they want to take them. And so you see the story of Abbas wa Tawalla, right? Who was the Prophet ﷺ talking to? He was talking to the Mala of Quraysh. Because that is a critical da'wah technique. And the khuluq is to get to that Mala. Get to the Mala and help them to change. When they change, then the people underneath change. When people see this. And that's a part of khuluq. If you want to teach khuluq in children, for example... You find out who is the mala child. There was always a mala, the child that the other children are looking up to. Look at his khuluq, you will find your son or your daughter acting exactly like that mala child. And so how do you get to your son or daughter? You change the mala. You change that higher upper class person, and then the people underneath will follow from their example. Knowledge helps a person to do that. Knowledge and khuluq, we also see... That knowledge of the Qur'an and Sunnah teaches a person about social services. Now a word like social service, you almost say, oh, that's a non-Muslim word. Social services. And in fact, when I read through these ayat and tried researching to uh, information for a khutbah, and I called it the mountain pass, and inshallah ta'ala you get a chance uh, to hear it one day. I realized that there wasn't too much information in the books about social services. If you go to the mimbars across uh, the western countries, they're not talking about social services. They're not talking about themes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions all throughout the Qur'an significantly, ayat after ayat. I'll give you a few examples of that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Muddathir about the people who are in hellfire, مَا سَلَكَكُمْ فِي سَقَرِ We'll be asked them, why are you in hellfire? They say, قَالُوا لَمْ نَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُصَلِّينَ They didn't do their salah, which is actually a topic that we talk about a lot. We always talk about people doing their salah, right? Reason number two, that they're in hellfire. وَلَمْ نَكُمْ الْمِسْكِينَ Hmm, it's not something that we hear in the khutbahs very often. They said that we're in hellfire because we never used to feed the poor people, the masakeen. This was not our characteristic, therefore we made it to hellfire. And again, I said something like those booths that are helping the masakeen are very critical booths. Very critical places that we have to uh, take part in if we don't want to be people of hellfire. You'll see in um, Surah Al-Fajr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where the person... <coughs> 
speaks about um, wealth and how it makes a person noble or not noble, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kalla. It's not about the wealth, but it's about your khuluq. Kalla, balla That nay, you are, don't do karam. You don't do, you're not generous to the orphans. وَلَا تَحَاضُّونَ عَلَىٰ طَعَامِ الْمِسْكِينَ And you don't encourage other people to feed the needy ones, the masakeen. And the ayah that we mentioned earlier, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يُكَذِّبُ بِالدِّينَ Do you see the person who disbelieves? And there's more ayat, and I can keep going like this. That these are ayat, they're coming from Juz Amma. The surahs that we recite again and again and again, teaching us the importance of reaching out and helping the people and reforming the society. <clears throat> so some person may ask, how do I give da'wah? Do I have to go out on a street and say, the end is near, and put up a big sign, I'm embarrassed and I can't do da'wah like this. I'm telling you, an awesome da'wah technique, da'wah project is social reform. Find an aspect of society that is corrupt or that needs help. And your whole da'wah project, even forget speaking about Islam, be a living example of a Muslim is to take care of the people in that aspect of society. I'll give you a few examples of that. A soup kitchen or taking care of the needy, the homeless that don't have food. right? Making a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen. Maybe a rape center. I see signs someplace, I'm sure you have it here. It has a woman crying and it says, Don't worry, you're not alone. It's a Christian rape, a crisis center. It should be a Muslim rape, crisis center. It should be the Muslims that are taking care of the people. Um, some people, they get pregnant out of wedlock through zina. And again, they have crisis centers for them. It should be a Muslim crisis center that takes care of these people. You have homosexuals in society. It should be Muslims that are working to reform the people and protecting them from the vice, from harming themselves. And again, that's mercy. They are going to harm themselves. And it might be with HIV or it might be with other destructions that might come upon them. To stop them is to protect themselves and to protect ourselves, of course. You have broken families. A Muslim should work on correcting that situation even amongst the non-Muslims. Correcting the broken family situation. The alcoholism. You have Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you have it here? It's a Christian organization. It should be a Muslim organization. That's taking care of the people that are um, alcoholics. You have new immigrants that need help. Um, maybe they need to learn the language or they need help finding jobs. It should be Muslims that help them. You have people. Thousands and thousands of people. Brothers and sisters that need to get married have a da'wah project that helps people get married. <clears throat> and you have youth that, <clears throat> that don't know what to do with their lives, have a da'wah project that works on getting those youth involved. And if you did that, even if you didn't speak about Islam, people would learn about Islam through your actions. They would say, who are these people who are feeding us? Oh, they're the Muslims. And I'll just give you this example. Uh, one brother in Canada, he did a da'wah project And in fact, he left the conference scene, he used to give lectures and so on, and he left it and he started uh, focusing on his uh, medical field. And Allah knows that we have armies of doctors in our community, right? Even in the UK here, armies of doctors. You say, who's a doctor? And every second Muslim raises their hand. 
and we usually don't require from them any action except give us money and we will do Dao activities. But what this brother did is he opened up a, 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 a medical clinic in downtown Winnipeg, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, right? Middle of nowhere, a clinic for the needy of the society and it's free, a walk-in clinic. So the needy people come. Who is taking care of the clinic? It's the Muslim doctors. They're not donating their money. They're donating their time to administer medicine and so on to the needy of the downtown people in that city. So the Muslims come in. This is a Muslim free walk-in clinic. There's 30, 40 doctors in this community. Look, brother, doctor, would, can you come and give us two hours a week? Sure, I'd love to. For the sake of Allah, no problem. They come in and give medicine. And when they see that they're actually helping people, they want to give more time. Now the government pays them for their time. They give the money to the clinic. So the clinic is self-sufficient. doesn't need fundraisers. Clinic is self-sufficient. Do you think it's a successful Dao project? You better believe it's successful. And you can compare this to people who go and give PowerPoint presentations about Islam and so on. It's a complete different world. And this, in fact, is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, to take care of the people. Okay, now, in conclusion, I'm going to be giving you some tips on how to change the situation. Now, here is the point where we move on to. We made the intention in the beginning that we're going to make a difference. Now, I'm going to give you the tools to make a difference. First and foremost, this is called the donuts versus apples theory. Okay, donuts versus apples theory. This happened in one of our Al-Maghrib Institute classes. We have a snack table for the students. And someone, God forbid, brought donuts to the, to the snack table. We never give donuts to the people. We give them apples. So if I offered you the two, if I brought you know, someone from the audience, I said, here's a donut and here's an apple. Choose which one you would want to eat. Which one would you choose? The donut without any doubt. Anybody who tells me I would choose the apple, I would say liar. Remember the khuluq of sidq, right? Anybody would choose the donut even if they were on a diet. Because they would say, no, this is, you know, educational purposes and stuff. I can make a, you know, a, um, I just forget. Anyhow, we were stand, me and another brother were standing at the snack table like um, contemplating it. And all the donuts were gone. And all the apples were still there. And someone came to the snack table and said, Where are the snacks? And then I looked at the apples and I said, They're right there. And then they, they walked away and they didn't eat anything. And then the brother, we actually had granola bars there, like chocolate covered granola bars. So the apples went first, then the granola bars, and then, uh, sorry, the... Um, uh, donuts went first, then the granola bars, and then no one touched the apples. How do you benefit this in your uh, dawah project? Because this was one, I, I taught fiqh dawah, and I wrote this on the exam. How do you apply the donut versus apple theory to your dawah project? That was an exam university question. Because this is how you do it, right? Are you ready for these deep thoughts? You don't have to stand up and make your blood flow for this one. <clears throat> the person will choose the donut. For sure. Have you ever heard of like a jelly buster donut? You have jelly busters? Anybody like jelly busters here? <laughs> Anyways, a jelly buster donut is a donut that has jelly inside, has strawberries. So you take your Dawa project and you put it inside the donut. You put it inside the donut. And that could be for your own khuluq. 
You want to change your khuluq, you put it inside a donut. Or you want to change someone else's khuluq, you put it inside a donut. So someone's saying, what do you mean put it inside a donut? I'll give you an example. Here in the UK, the kids like to play uh, football. I was going to say soccer, but I'm in the UK. The kids like to play football. In America, they like to play basketball. You want them to come to a lecture. They don't want to come to the lecture. They want to play football. What do you do? You put the lecture on the football field. That's putting it inside the donut. They're getting to fulfill their desire, and at the same time, they're learning something beneficial. So for example, the youth activity that's probably in some boring place with chairs lined up just like this, it should be on the football field. On the football field, here's the sheikh. He sits with all the kids around him. And he says, before we play football, we have to learn the rules of being a good football player and being a good Muslim. And they say, what is the rules? What are the rules? And then they listen. Anybody who doesn't listen doesn't get to, doesn't get to play football. That's how, that's where you put it inside the donut. And I'm going to give you examples of this. And in fact, it is so fundamental in the sunnah, from the Quran and sunnah, that you might not have recognized it also. If Allah makes something haram, He makes something halal, where the desire of doing the haram is fulfilled. So a human has a desire to commit zina, Allah made marriage halal. A person has a desire to make money, out of riba, Allah made business transactions halal. And you can keep going through that. Pork is haram and beef is halal. And then you see, for example, the Prophet ﷺ, Akhraj al-Bukhari, wa Muslim fi al-Raqaiq, he said ﷺ, إِذَا نَظَرَ أَحَدُكُمْ إِلَى مَنْ فُضِّلَ عَلَيْهِ فِي الْمَالِ وَالْخَلْقِ فَلْيَنْظُرْ إِلَى مَنْ هُوَ أَسْفَلَ مِنْ Prophet ﷺ said that if any of you looks at someone who has uh, been preferred and favored with more wealth or more creation, maybe they're more handsome, maybe they're more stronger, فَلْيَنظُرْ Let them look at someone who has less than them. So the human desire is to want to be significant, to be above others. This is the desire. So when they see people that have more, it will, may cause them to do haram. So the Prophet ﷺ, fulfill your desire of wanting to be significant by looking at the people who have less than you. And so I give this example. Dr. Rafi al is not here this year. And you may have known of the fitna, and inshallah ta'ala, maybe you'll hear more about it. The fitna that's happening in the U.S., and he was put in prison. And he was giving lectures here last year, he's not here this year. He has a wife, he has children. Someone may say, come to the conference, and they want, they're not married. Maybe they're 27, 30 years old and they're not married. And they see people that are married and they may say, Oh, I wasn't blessed like this person. It may cause them to do haram. But if they really look at how much Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them and they weren't tested the way other people were tested, it's a cause for them to say, Alhamdulillah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected this one person. And they actually have more than they recognize. Where other people might not have it. I'll give you another example. A human has a desire, especially guys, they have a desire to show off their muscles. I'm not sure about sisters, but you'll see the little kids amongst themselves, the boys, they'll like, you know, put their muscles out like this, like my muscles bigger than yours, and they will measure up their muscles. A human has a, you know, they have this desire to want to be macho, to show their strength. So some people show their strength by getting anger, angry faster than the other person. I'm so strong, look, I'm getting angry. And they get angry like this. The Prophet ﷺ said, 
This is narrated by Al-Bukhari and Muslim fil Birri wa Salah. Laysa shadidu bi sur'ati innama shadidu alladhi yamliku nafsahu inda al-ghadab. He said that the shadid, the strong person, is not the one who can wrestle other people, but the strong person is the one who controls themselves when they get angry. That is the sign of someone being macho and tough and powerful, is that they are able to control themselves when they get angry. And so the human has the desire to show that strength. This is the way to fulfill it. Okay, now, tools. This is called the pressure cooker theory. This comes from uh, some of those people that talk about you know, how to change your life, uh, from Tony Robbins and there's other people. He gives this example of a pressure cooker. There's a lot of people, when you ask them, what do you want to change in your life? They'll say, I want to lose weight. This is the most important thing in their entire life in order to get to gender or something like that, is they need to lose weight. Now, how does a person get to that point where they finally say, no, I'm not going to have this, I'm going to change my lifestyle? A pressure cooker is that so much pain accumulates on this person, people go, you're fat, you're fat, you're fat. And then they get, they, for example, they see themselves in a video, they're like, oh no, I look, what am I, I got to do something. I'm going to go running in the morning. 20 miles, and they, they do this like that. Because there's so much pain. As they start to lose weight, then people say, hey, you're not that fat anymore. They go, I'm not. And then they slow down. And that's called yo-yo dieting. It's actually because the pain lessens, and the person stops acting upon it. And then they go back, then to pain accumulates, and then they return to their um, resolution, and then they keep going like this. Back and forth, back and forth. Now I'll tell you, this, I gave you the example of how to do an amazing da'wah project was to do social services. That was the khuluq of the Prophet ﷺ. If you didn't do it, if you went home and you didn't do it, what kind of pain would, be, would come upon you? You answer, no pain whatsoever. If you went home and didn't apply anything of what I said, no pain would come to you at all. And that's why you're not going to do it. Or most of you. Which is obvious, we have to be truthful, right? I'm saying this lecture and most people are not going to implement it. We're being truthful with ourselves. Because that's the first step to change. There is no pain attached to not doing a soup kitchen. No one's going to get angry at us. No one's going to say, why didn't you do it? I'm not going to phone you up and tell you, hey, did you do this? I don't know your phone number anyway, right? However, as um, uh, Brother Abdul Hakim Quick was saying yesterday, that subhanAllah, the hikmah of the trials that we're going through. That now after like 9-11, we have like he said, three things we can either do. And Muslims have these different ways of re- replying. They either went and hid. They said, please don't, I'm, I didn't do anything. You know? They covered their face. And they went home. Someone knocked on their door. FBI, get out of your house. Go to jail. And they were already caught anyway. Right? So they couldn't do that. You're going to be pulled out of the crowd even if you try hiding. Right? Then you have the other side, people that tried to assimilate. They say, we are just like you non-Muslims. We are Christians and Jews and mushrikeen at the same time. You know, but Muslims, we are actually Muslims. You know, a confusion, assimilation doesn't work. They will even separate those people. So we're being pushed to teach people the true Islam. And subhanAllah, the hikmah of it. If you ever ask yourself, why is Allah doing this to us? It's to put it in the pressure cooker. So that we get up and say, yes, we do have to do something. Because if you don't make a difference, and if you don't speak Islam to the people, then they will tell you what your Islam is, and you will be harmed by it. 
And so you're being forced to stand up and say, I'm a Muslim and this is what Islam is about. Okay. RPM. R stands for results. P stands for purpose. M stands for method. Firstly, let's talk about a khuluq that a person wants to change. Here at the conference last year, I tested you. I tested you last year at the conference because I came here and not too many people knew that I was going to be giving speeches. So I was testing you by how nice you were to me before you found out that I was the one giving the speeches. Right? Did I tell you the results of this last year or you forget? I'm not going to tell you the results. But one thing I can tell you for sure is that not only here, but in many places, in Muslim uh, communities, people who are new are not welcomed. People who are new are not welcome. Again, we have to be truthful with ourselves. If there's someone who came to this conference and knew no friends from before, they might go through all these days and meet no one. Unless they're the outgoing one, and they're the ones who start making connections, but usually no one will make connection to them. This is a bad khuluq. We have to be welcoming. Someone comes to the masjid, you see the Prophet ﷺ, someone became Muslim, immediately they're at the front of the crowd. People are learning this, he's telling them, teach your brother about Islam. They're teaching him, he goes back as a da'i. These are his first days in Islam. What do we do? A lot of times the person is just quiet in the corner. So this is a khuluq that we want to change. We want to become more welcoming to the people. How do we do it? Firstly, we want a result. A specific goal that we want. Specific goal. The specific goal, number one, is that at this conference, I want to make friends with two new people. Every single conference that I come to, I will make two new friends. Can you agree with me on this? Do you agree? Say inshallah. Okay, everybody, you see, now if every single person is sadiq in what they just said, inshallah, to, there would be an enormous amount of brotherhood in this room and in this entire conference. Because everybody would be crisscrossing who they made friends with. Okay, so we're going to become welcoming people. Specific goal is to meet two people. How do we measure if we were successful in our connection with these people? The measurement. Are you recording this in your minds? Because not too many people are writing in their paper and pen. Again, being truthful with yourself. The measurement is if you make a connection with them after the conference. And you can say that if you email them once after the conference, Brother Muhammad, you can email me and tell me, I did it. Okay, I fulfilled the resolution. So that's the result. Those are specific results. We didn't say, I want to be a welcoming person. You will get nowhere like that. You have to say specifically, this is what I want to do, this is how I'm going to get it, this is my specific goal. How are we going to do it? The purpose, why do you want this? If you say, I want to make a million dollars, and you don't have, why do you want that? If there's no reason behind it, you won't do it. You have to have a very strong pain and pleasure association for this. So number one, we heard that the Prophet ﷺ, the ones most beloved to the Prophet, and obviously therefore most beloved to Allah, are the ones who have the best khuluq. So if I do this, if I make two friends, and every year I do this, I have the best khuluq from all the people in the conference. That's a lot of pleasure involved. What about pain? Maybe you were new one year, and you know what it feels like to not have friends. You might still be in that situation. You see the pain involved in this, 
And so you associate, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to let anybody else feel like that. And what's interesting about this is that if you change and you start applying this and you start becoming welcoming to other people, you will start getting massive amounts of pleasure yourself. Because you will meet so many new people that the conference, and in fact, subhanAllah, I've heard that this conference is very popular because of people welcoming others. And it's getting more popular because of that. Okay, now how are you going to do it? I pay attention specifically to this one. How are you going to make these friends? Because I'm going to take you to account for this. Number one is after the lecture, you go and buy two packs of Smarties. Okay, two Smarties. And in, in the U.S. we say M&M's, but in Canada we say Smarties. Anyhow, two packs of Smarties, one for one friend and one for the other. You put one in your pocket, the other one in the other pocket. Two Smarties. Go up to someone that you do not know at all, totally unique person, and say, Brother, sister, here's a pack of Smarties for you. Brother Muhammad told me to give it to you. You give them the Smarties, it's a hadiyah. They'll say, how much does it cost? No, no, it's nothing. I just want to, you know, you're my Muslim brother. Here's the pack of Smarties. And sisters are good at this, and I know they're making the resolutions also. She gives this pack of Smarties, and then she says, so, where are you from? And now you hear the bio. Where are you from? Who's your daddy? What's it? And then they'll say, I'm from Leicester. They're like, Leicester? Are you lying? <laughs> it's Lester. Okay. <laughs> Right, So you start taking out, you gather their bio information, you start learning about them. As they say, they're like, I'm not from here. And then you take the last words, you go, you're not from here? You're not from here. And you put a question mark and they go, yeah, I'm from Leicester. Leicester? And you keep putting question marks like that. Every time they finish their sentence, put a question mark, question mark, question mark. And you will get massive amounts of information from them. Okay, so Smarties, the gift. Now you're getting their bio information. I want you to have dinner with them at least once. And you don't have to be alone with them. That might be a little bit too um, intimate or something like that. Get your friends, they get their friends, and come on, let's have dinner together. Let's sit at the same table or the same um, area. And that's the dinner. And one of the lectures, sit beside them in one of the lectures. Alhamdulillah, there are many lectures that you'll get to apply this. Okay, so you made friends, you found them. You gave them the hadiyah. You sat with them for one dinner and you sat with them for one lecture. You got their email in the end and you send them one email after the conference. That is a specific method. And I'm going, again, I'm going to take you to account towards the end of the conference and the farewell advice. I will say, how many people did it? How many people? I will ask you. And I might give smartest to the people who raise their hands and show And so. All right, in conclusion, inshallah, there's like five minutes left, and I'll give you a chance to ask questions. There's question time? No? Just go home. Okay, here's the last point. You want to cultivate your khuluq also with yourself. If a person has weak khuluq, and they're not practicing Islam, it's usually because they're not thankful to Allah Azza wa And when you see the root of the word kafir, it comes from ungratefulness. And so an enormously important characteristic of the believer is to be shakir, is to be thankful. So this is a specific thing that I want you to do, and <clears throat> inshallah ta'ala you'll find the benefits of it. We know from the sunnah to say alhamdulillah, right? After salah you say subhanallah, alhamdulillah, allahu akbar. What I'm saying to you is that take five minutes of your day 
and say Alhamdulillah. Even if you just say it 33 times or even 10 times, just do it. And as you start doing it, you will find the benefits. Say Alhamdulillah and then say specifically why you are thanking Allah. So you'll say Alhamdulillah for my Islam. Alhamdulillah that I'm married. Alhamdulillah that I have a beautiful car. MashaAllah, tabarakAllah. Alhamdulillah that I'm alive. Alhamdulillah that I have eyes to see. Alhamdulillah that I was able to pray Fajr and Jama'ah today. Alhamdulillah that I'm here saying Alhamdulillah. That's all you have to do. Just do that and you will cultivate a thankfulness to Allah Azza wa Jal. And that in turn will help you to come closer to Allah Azza wa Jal in all your actions. And bi-idhnillah, your khuluq will increase and move you on to learn the khuluq of the Prophet wasallam. And in conclusion, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from those who listen to these statements and follow the best of what is heard. Ameen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not make us from those who listen and don't practice what we hear. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiru wa atubu Assalamu alaikum. If everyone could remain seated, and there's a few announcements to be made about the seminars, I'd like to thank the uh, brother Muhammad uh, al-Sharif for his enlightening words, and just like to remind everyone, don't buy the Smarties because the weather's too hot. They might melt in your pocket. I think we have to change the Smarties. <laughs> but uh, may Allah place these words in, the, in his mizan of hasanat, his balance of good deeds, and bless him both in this dunya and the akhirah. And can please everyone remain seated whilst we make the announcement inshallah assalamu alaikum warahmatullah um, as you can see we have a lot more people than we can accommodate in the event and that's why we had to put a ceiling on how many applicants can uh, can participate in the event uh, no matter what, whatever ceiling we put in, there are still day trippers coming as well, people who turn up on the day. So there are always going to be, unfortunately, some people, brothers and sisters, who cannot get seats in the hall to listen to the lectures properly. All the marquees are full, all the rooms are full, everything is full all over the place. So apologies for that, it can't be helped. So unless you go in as a, on a first-come, first-served basis, you might find yourself not being able to get in and listen to the lectures and so forth. Having said that, the next session is going to be the, uh, the seminars. If this thing works. Otherwise, let me just mention by... It doesn't work. Let me mention by, by name. There are three seminars happening in parallel. Uh, there is the practical dawah seminar. If somebody can come and fix the flash while I'm talking, that would be helpful as well. So there's a practical da'wah seminar uh, conducted by uh, Shabir Ali. There is a righteous family <coughs> seminar uh, conducted primarily at this stage by Dr. Mamdouh. And there is a social ills and the cures seminar. And all three seminars happen in parallel at the same time. So three seminars, and we have to decide where to go to, inshallah. The first seminar, practical da'wah, is going to happen at Digby Hall which is the furthest from this place. Digby Hall, where the single brothers are staying, men-only hall. It's about 10 to 15 minutes walk, depending on how fast or slow we walk. So Digby Hall is for the seminar A, for practical da'wah, where uh, Shabir Ali will be taking it. As for the righteous family, it is going to be in Gilbert Murray, inshallah ta'ala. 
At this stage, if you didn't see the notice, may I request the sisters, sisters please pay attention, all the sisters in Gilbert Murray Hall should remain seated for the next 10 minutes and not vacate the hall while, we, while the brothers shift around. And no brothers should be mingling around outside after 10 minutes from now either. So, the Seminar B on Righteous Family happens at Gilbert Murray, uh, conducted by Dr. Mamdouh. So, brothers who want to go to the Righteous Family Seminar, as soon as the announcement is over, you can't really take a proper break, maybe 10-15 minutes, but you have to be at Gilbert Murray on time for a 4.30 start, and on a first-come, first-served basis as far as the seats are concerned. And the final seminar, Seminar C, is going to be...